bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier days I wouldn't want it any other Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and each week this podcast shares vegan health transformation stories from real people who have overcome their chronic diseases after ditching the meat, eggs, dairy and processed foods that were keeping them stuck in unwell bodies and transforming them into incredible, vital, healthy, thriving humans who in almost every single episode of this podcast, have gone on to become just amazing versions of themselves after many, many, many years of their lives spent unwell. People have gone on to become athletes, Ironman, ultramarathon runners, jujitsu masters, Dietitians have gone on to do nutrition studies. They've gone on to become health coaches, fitness instructors. In so many ways, to give speeches, to run talks, workshops, in so many ways they are now giving back and they're able to give back because they're no longer sick and unwell eating these foods that were keeping them miserable and unhappy. This podcast also shares expert opinions and research from doctors, naturopaths, dietitians, nutritionists, We've got psychologists on the show, neuroscientists on the show, so many expert opinions of people who are experts in diet, but also are medical or lifestyle practitioners or just incredible in their own right. But they're also plant-based and wonderful. And I love having these people on the show because they help educate people like myself and you all about the many benefits of eating a whole food plant-based diet for our mind, body and soul. And so I was very excited this week to have dietitian Peter Johnston on the show. Now, Peter Johnston is a dietitian, but he also has a master's in nutrition and dietetics and also a PhD in human genetics. He is an incredible, incredibly knowledgeable man. And I was so excited to have him on the show I met met Peter back in 2017 when we spoke at the Nutrition in Healthcare Symposium held by the lovely Lucy Stegley from Raw Events. Lucy is also co-founder of Doctors for Nutrition, so check out the Doctors for Nutrition website for more great events like the one I just mentioned. Today, Peter is sharing his incredible journey to plant-based eating, which is one of the most fascinating life stories I've had the pleasure of listening to. I can't I can't do it justice. I don't know what to say, but what an incredible life Peter has led in his pursuit to create more peace on earth. So settle yourself in to hear more about this wonderful and dedicated man and the work he is now doing to support people to transition to a whole food plant-based diet after a lifetime that he has spent committed to his work as a peace activist. The thing is, what I'm taking away from this interview and what I take away from whole food plant-based eating in in a vegan lifestyle is that eating a whole food plant-based diet is a form of peaceful activism. Eating a diet free from the violence that is entrenched in the farming and processing of pigs, sheep, cows, chicken, marine life is a peaceful act. And it teaches others who witness us living and thriving without consuming the suffering, tortured pieces of animal flesh that most of society are still consuming. By witnessing us thriving, we are teaching others that it is possible to eat and be healthier without without killing sentient beings. That is peaceful activism. The less we participate in violence of all forms, the less violence is perpetuated in all areas of our lives. The more compassionate we become as humans, and with that increased compassion comes more acceptance, more kindness and more love and understanding. Peace is the ultimate ripple effect of humans adopting a vegan diet. 
once we begin to show compassion for the animals, the next obvious step is for us to show compassion for one another. Peter is doing incredible work teaching and supporting his community to switch to a whole food plant-based diet. He has had great results with the people who have started working with him and doing his program. And as those people feel better, the people in their lives will notice and they'll, many of them will begin to eat and consume less animal products, less processed foods, and add in more whole, beautiful plant foods. And people will start to feel better. And as a result, when you feel better, you just do better in the world and you are better in the world and you're more kind, you're more loving, you're more compassionate and you're able to give back when before you were, most of us, myself included, were deeply hyper-focused on our own illness, on our own suffering and unable to give back to the world in a meaningful way. Well, often many people, there are exceptions, but many, many, many people who are suffering themselves we're so busy focusing on our own suffering that it can be really difficult to, to give back and to support our communities and to do things that promote peace on earth. I know for certain that you'll enjoy listening to Peter's story as much as I did. It is fascinating and I wish I could watch the movie version of his life because, yeah, I think it would be really, really, really interesting viewing. Uh, he's an incredible man. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and I'll see you at the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Hello, Peter, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Corinne. Lovely to see you and speak with you. So I've obviously given you a little introduction at the start. Now we would just like to hear your story. Now I've heard you speak at the Doctors for Nutrition conference and the Dr. Michael Clapper Correct. Nutrition in Healthcare Symposium run by Raw Events. And I, lo I loved hearing you speak, actually. I found it really, really fascinating and I love the work that you're doing. So, yeah, tell us, tell us how you came to a whole food plant-based lifestyle and to become a whole food plant-based nutritionist. It's been quite a long journey. I grew up in New Zealand and at one point as a young man, I was working in shearing gangs and we ate a sheep a day, seven of us. Wow. So we worked a 12-hour day. This was when I was 16, 17, 18. I did this in my summer holidays. And a seven-person shearing gang would have a, a cooked breakfast, a cooked lunch, a cooked dinner. We would eat a whole sheep every day. And I was the presser, and my job was to cut up that carcass that was hanging in the shed and had been hanging for a few days to get a bit green. So it was tender. What do you mean a bit green? Because that sounds so gross to me. They like to age it. So so just hanging it up ages it? Yeah. So just just hanging it? You don't put any salt on it or anything? Just hanging no, it? No, just hanging it and letting it age. It's, I guess it starts to break down. I, I, it gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about it now. Sorry. But it's interesting to me because it sounds disgusting. And you think you saw a dead animal that had been dead for three days, you'd be like, ugh. <laughs> But when you hang it, that's okay. New Zealand is not too tropical, but this was summertime, so still warm. But in a shady shed, hung up, so you'd cut off any bits that were fly-blown and cut up the carcass and for the cook. And we had a travelling cook with the gang. So, we'd yeah, we'd eat a sheep a day. So I grew up on a normal kiwi diet, and back then we didn't have avocados and capsicums and coriander, and those foods were, were to come later. And we didn't have fast food then. I can remember when KFC came when I was a young teenager, might have been 12. That was the first fast food chain. And people didn't eat out at restaurants or cafes. There was, I remember there were a couple of restaurants in Dunedin where I grew up, a Chinese and an Italian. And that was, that was a special treat for adults. Kids didn't go. There was no culture sitting in cafes whiling away the morning yeah same for me when i was growing up we had a chinese restaurant and it wasn't maybe for a birthday but otherwise it was adults only went to the i chinese. never went i don't remember going so we and we had a huge garden and dad mainly it was dad growing tons of food fruit trees a glass house with tomatoes and grapes 
and huge veggie beds. And mum was a dietitian. So we had healthy food. Well, mum hadn't finished her training at that point, so but she did that later when I was 17. But so I had a good start in that sense. And this was, you know, this was in the 60s. So, but it was a standard, standard Western diet with, you know, meat heavy, but albeit with lots of fresh home cooked food and vegetables. So, well, that part's good. That part's good with the vegetables. Gosh, I wish my parents had. We had a carrot farm, but there wasn't much else growing around. A nectarine tree, you know plum tree or whatever, but not a, yeah. not, not a whole orchard and a heap and heap of greenhouse. No. And I can remember fruit being a bit of a treat then too, apart from what we grew. Mum would bottle the stuff we grew so we could have that occasionally through the through the rest of the year, open a bottle. And that was in sugar, it was sugary, but um, the I can remember occasionally Dad would find an affordable, cheap case of fruit at the market and bring it home and we would hoe into that. But that would be intermittent. But we didn't have a big fruit bowl with lots of different coloured fruits in it growing up because it was a it was a treat. It was Dunedin. There wasn't a Queensland nearby to ship it from or fly it from. Yeah. And it was it was a different economy back then. Had what was affordable for a one income family on a moderate income. And so, when you when did you move out of home? How old were you? Seventeen. Seventeen. And I didn't know how to cook, so we would buy meat patties and I didn't even know how to cook a roast and we just have fry ups and ate shit and ate lots of takeaway food by then because there were burger joints then mm. and I would eat yeah lots of hamburgers and and crap and pizza and but a few that was uh, I moved out of home at 17 when I was 22 23 I met my first serious girlfriend and she happened to be a vegetarian oh wow and I was somewhat blown away by this. I'd never met a vegetarian, let alone barely heard about it. It was unknown. And of all things, she was a dairy farmer's daughter, but decided at some point she didn't like meat. We moved in together and um, my sister and her boyfriend and me and this girlfriend, and we agreed that we would cook vegetarian at home so that we could all eat the same food, which seems remarkably agreeable. Roll with it. No one, no one kicked up a fuss, so there was no meat in the house. Very, very egg and dairy heavy though in those days, because that was what you did, and people were worried about getting enough protein and compensating. Yeah, and calcium. They were just panicked about calcium and protein. I don't remember the calcium so much then, but it was just if you're taking out the meat, you've got to add something else. Animal based was kind. It was just as simple as that. We didn't know any more than that. And twelve months in. I suddenly gagged on a ham roll at university because I was still having meat outside of house and I realised I can't do this anymore. And I put the roll down and said, that's it, I'm not. I'm going vegetarian. And from that day, I had no more meat or fish. And that was almost 40 years ago. So that was in 81. Wow. And I started to read books. So I, I, I found Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore Lape, read some books about tofu which was a new trendy thing um how to make your own tofu and started to get things like the moosewood cookbook which was again in those days super meat and dairy and super egg and cheese heavy and so started to develop some awareness about the environmental and the health stuff but had never heard the term vegan then and so that was it i was i was a vegetarian from then on and then 10 years later i was i'd finished my phd in canberra and was taking a, a circuitous route to my postdoc in Montreal via India and Europe and New Zealand. So in India, I happened to meet a Kiwi woman who was traveling and she told me about this amazing new book I should check out called Diet for a New America by John Robbins. And this was one. So I bought that, and this was early 91. I bought that when I got to Montreal and it blew me away because it was the first time I'd seen in comprehensive detail the ethical, the health and the environmental arguments in one well-argued, compassionately argued book with citations and evidence. And I said, right, I'm going vegan. And I moved into a, a vegan household in Montreal as the only English speaker to help improve my French, which was fun, and started to become vegan. So I'd 
it took me a year to transition or or roughly that, but it was moving to San Francisco after that year that really helped cement it. I got to San Francisco in 92 and there were a lot more vegans there and I moved into a vegan household. Even had vegan neighbours upstairs who were Food Not Bombs activists. So that was fun because they would cook meals to take out and feed the homeless, but the ethos was it was all vegan and they did dumpster diving and recycling, reclaiming food. and So it was an easy culture to be fully vegan. So that, that's the, the, the journey, essentially. But being whole food plant-based, I in those days there wasn't vegan junk food. So it was very hard even to find vegan chocolate. I remember Hershey's Dark was vegan, but it wasn't that flesh and I didn't buy it very often. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of the things like vegan donuts or other crap like that. So... We used oil, so I wasn't whole food plant based. But that, and I was, it was on getting getting an iPad through work about seven years ago, and I started to listen to podcasts at home. And I'd been reading Esselstyn and Ornish and stuff for years, but um, thought that I'm fit and healthy. I've never been overweight, never been sick with any chronic disease, so it doesn't. I don't need to be that strict. But then I realised, yeah, I do. Mm. You don't want to get sick. No, but I want time is marching on and I want every advantage I can have because I've been obsessed about not aging for, for a long time. That's why I did my PhD was to, to find out what causes aging and arrest that process. Wow. What was you, I, didn't, I don't know what your PhD was on. Was it on that? Human genetics. Oh, wow. So I wanted to clone the genes that cause our programmed aging and, and slow arrest or, or reverse the process. What made you interested in that area? Like, what happened? Was there someone that you lost that you're like, I don't want to lose anyone again? Or is it? Because I could, I could imagine something has to. That's a, that's a big topic to be fascinated by and passionate about when when you're not, you know, when you're young. It is. I I nearly killed myself in a motorbike accident when I was 18. So it might have been that. Once at uni, when I was about 20, I smoked a whole bag of pot one night with a friend and spiralled off in, into psychosis for a month, oh, and that changed me yeah. a lot, and in a good way. I had a um, kind of a, um, a few weeks of mania where I was thinking and trying to solve all the world's problems, albeit in an irrational manner, but that was a fascinating. In a way, I, I look, looked at that soon after and ever since as it kicked, kicked me up into sort of a, a higher plane, in a way, of thinking and of and of functioning. Mm-mm. Sounds a bit weird, but... No, it doesn't at all, and I think a lot of people, I think nowadays as more and more people are becoming aware of plant medicine and when it when it's used responsibly and I think Smoke that... Bag of pot wasn't that responsible. wasn't responsible, no. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone listening. Neither would I. But, I mean, there is, you know, there is... I don't believe that any plants we find in nature are... Like obviously there's toxic plants we shouldn't be consuming. Mm. But I do think that with those plants that traditional cultures have been using for medicinal purposes for you know centuries, I do think that they use them because and often they say because they want there's a spirit there's a there's a spiritual what's the word? An opening that can can happen for people. And I'm not saying that everyone should do it every day or any time at all or you know Whatever, I'm not promoting you to smoke a bag of weed. But I do think that lots of people say that they get benefits when they do it infrequently <laughs> and, and not in a bag. Well, this was my first year of my first degree and I was doing philosophy, which was tripping me out. Yeah. I was doing psychology, politics. So I was thinking about the world in a holistic way and really engaging in that. And then there's Combine that with a whole bag of dope, and my mind went into overdrive. So it's like I've, I really felt like I came out as a higher functioning person at the end of that period, even though I did spin off into psychosis, and my family were terrified that I'd become schizophrenic or bipolar, which I didn't, and I've had no further episodes. But it was a it was a fascinating time, and that changed me fundamentally in some ways. Yeah, so there was that, but also. I was terrified about losing my family and I didn't want my mum my and dad to die. And I wanted, I was, felt like I was racing against time to solve this before my, I lost my parents. And I have lost my father. He died in 99 of a, of a cerebral hemorrhage, which was to a large extent lifestyle induced. So 
anyway, that I was a, on a mission, but I was talking with my partner this morning. In some ways, my, my life has been episodes of, of crazy, audacious goals. I, I love that about you, Peter. I love that about you. You only know the half of it. I know. I want to. I, I we have to have lunch so I can hear more. <laughs> so with, I, I know we we kind of on a tangent, and I'm, but I just want to deep dive with your PhD. What results did you discover? I did that to get the basic tools for how to be a genetic engineer. There, there wasn't the opportunity to work directly in a lab researching aging while I did my PhD, but that was my passion before, while I was doing my honours degree and through the PhD, I was scouring the world's literature, reading every paper I could find, every book I could find. I read everything that was available at the time and, and absorbed it with a, an intensity and a passion. So at the same time, I was getting learning how to manipulate DNA, splice it, rejoin it, clone it, the tools of the trade. And learning about everything related to aging. So halfway through, I started to look for where I could do a postdoc. And I identified three labs in the world that were working on aging at a genetic level at that time. This was about 1990 or late 89. And there was one in Montreal, one in Boulder, Colorado, and one in, in Houston, Texas. I wrote to all three asking if I could come and work there, and they all said yes. And for some reason, I chose the Montreal one. I'm not sure why, and went to work there. But the boss was a bully and a tyrant. It, it didn't work out. And um, there were some colleagues who lost their grant funding, and they had kids and mortgages. And I was starting to see the the insecurity of academia and the, the, the publish or perish and the spending so much time scrabbling for money to fund your research and to pay the 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 lab staff and and who work with you that combined with the the toxic work environment i just i walked away from it and so then we'll fast track to you then studying nutrition doing a master's in nutrition i moved to san francisco to work in food politics so i identified that this Frances Moore Lappe, whose book I'd read some years earlier, was in San Francisco, and she had a, a, a an organisation called Food First. So I'd have thought I would go down there, rock up, and ask for work, and that they would give me work. <laughs> the audaciousness again. Is, I know, I love it. I don't think it's arrogance. It's just a bit unrealistic, naive audaciousness. Yeah, I have that too. I have that too. Oh, good. Yeah. And they didn't have the money, but they said you can work with us as a as a locum. And I didn't have any enough money. I needed I hadn't saved money, and so I ended up getting a job as a peace activist in San Francisco, and that led me down a ten year path of political activism. So I was still reading nutrition books, and but also getting extremely political, and reading and studying politics intensely. So I essentially became a full-time political activist for the next decade, working where I had to, to pay my costs. But in in the part of that time, during that 10 years, I, I also did my master's in nutrition. So I got fed up with San Francisco. I'd saved up some money, came back to Australia with the purpose of studying to become a dietitian. And I went to Wollongong because I I looked at Melbourne, went down to Melbourne to have a look, and it seemed like another big city. I was, the three years in San Francisco, I was over the concrete jungle city life, and I wanted somewhere more green. So I picked Wollongong, did my master's there, but I was really only had half my attention on it because I was more focused on getting rid of capitalism as a political activist. Mm. <laughs> just a small feat, just a small just a- feat. <laughs> Just a little challenge. <laughs> I love that you were doing that, though. Like, that's such a beautiful, noble thing to do. And I, I, I thank you. It was motivated by the world, the way the world was going mm. and, and analyzing what was causing it, what was the best way forward, what would make the world a better place, a more equal, equitable, just world. And that took me to Darwin, where I led the, led the branch up there with my partner who I'd met in Wollongong. And then it took me back to Melbourne. So what were you doing in Darwin? Political campaigning. I worked part-time 
in the homeless sector to pay my bills three days a week and four days a week I was a full-time political organiser and that was on any campaigns where there was energy and movement so anti anti-uranium East Timor anti-racism women's rights education and convincing people of the need to get rid of capitalism and and recruiting people to the cause and and getting our message out so I'd 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 been to Darwin with a dietetics placement and that's why I enjoyed my six weeks up there and when an opportunity came up to lead the branch up there I I took it. So you weren't doing nutrition you were just doing political activism over there? There was no nutrition at that point I was still a vegan utterly convinced but the interesting thing is through all those years of being a vegan I think my success rate of influencing anyone was near to zero which is why, you know, stepping forward to today, the programs I've been doing are so satisfying because I'm actually changing groups of people, groups at a time. But but no one, no one was interested or curious and they thought it was crazy and it was just my thing. And I was a lone voice amongst in a sea of non-interested omnivores. Yes. Oh, I know what that's like. Decades. Yes. Decades. So... Your, talk about Let's talk about your work now. What are you doing now? The programs that you're running. When I worked at City of Darabin, I was working with older people in public housing. Uh, um, I got out of politics and I started a serious job with local government and put my heart and soul into it. And I saw the chronic disease in these older people and how it was so lifestyle related. I knew the science and I knew of the work of PCRM and Ornish and Esselstyn, and I wanted to set up some kind of program to help them. And the idea of, of some kind of supported program was developed. And I reached out to, to Deakin University and, and was working with an academic there who was interested to support me. But And he, he left, unfortunately, for another city, and I also left that job. The, prog- the plans fell over. At the time, I was also working with Lentil as Anything, to get a community kitchen in the uh, base of the high-rise estate because I had an unused commercial kitchen there that was all set up and essentially just sat empty. And it would have addressed so many health and nutrition problems for that population and social isolation issues. It was situated in a gentrified neighbourhood where people could have got involved and it would have some, you know, if you like, de-ghettoized, it's not the right term, but it was an isolated community of highly disadvantaged, traumatized people in a gentrified neighborhood. And to bring connections across a neighborhood would have been fabulous, which lentils thing do. But again, we didn't get a chance to bring that project to fruition either because I left. And so when I moved to the, the where I've been working at another local government, I again was starting to plot how I could make some nutrition change in the organization. And I literally bought half a dozen copies of How Not to Die, half a dozen copies of Forks Over Knives, half a dozen copies of of uh, Cowspiracy and half a dozen copies of Earthlings. And I was writing a cover letter, which I was going to print six of, and I was going to give one to our CEO and each of our directors and say, here, read this, watch these, and then let's talk about how we can change the culture here. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit audacious again. Yeah, <laughs> I know, very, I love it. But I thought... Well, I've got to find a way to get this into their heads. And they're the people in power. They can change it. If they know this stuff, then they'll do something. But it, before I got to do that, while I was still plotting that and getting my cover letter ready, they asked for staff to submit innovative ideas to improve the culture and the efficiency and the productivity. And so I thought, here's my chance. So I developed this idea of the three-week three program, pitched it, got approval, and started running them. That is amazing. And you've had, t- t- tell us about your results of this, because this has been, what is, what is the program called? What did you call it? Initially, we, we had to find a name really fast at, with me working with some internal staff there and a comms guy said, well, we, let's call it Food for Life. We'd, we'd, I'd probably knew and forgotten that it's PCRM we're using that. So the first program or two, we called it that. Then I realised Actually, that's not very nice. We need to change the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They called it the Whole Food Solution. That's wonderful. And so, yeah, I read, I tested a program. We we didn't know if we'd get anyone interested because it hadn't been done, to my knowledge, in Australia. We put up 
I actually didn't even put up posters. We just put a notice on the intranet and we got 11 people, including the manager of HR, to give it a go. And we got outstanding results. And it was just two lunchtime meetings a week and getting them to go to their GP to get a blood test before and after the three weeks. I had limited resources at the first program to support them other than just saying, here's a website, here are some websites to go to. I send them emails several times a week with ideas and suggestions and encouragements. And we met twice a week at lunchtimes. So we had to do this with no budget and no work time. So it was all done in lunchtimes. And just before I started it, I'd met Malcolm Mackay and Jenny Cameron, who have been the most wonderful collaborators and have been so fortunate to meet them. They're fantastic. Hello, Malcolm and Jenny. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So So they came, they agreed to come and do a joint talk on the final day of the program, which was the first time I had other people helping me on the program. This first program, I did it myself. Just We just had lunchtime chats and I just didn't say, how are you going and do a QA and a and motivate them and winging it. But it was a successful winging it. Your unrealistic, naive audaciousness yeah. paid off. 11 people. Worked. And they embraced it and they really went 100%. And blood tests at the end and the changes and the weight changes and blood pressure were incredible. So that one, we had an average total cholesterol drop in just three weeks of 20%. And that's been our average through the programs. And we pitched for people who had chronic disease or weight issues, but we, we subsequent programs, we've taken on people who have been fit and healthy, including a marathon runner. But he's also had significant cholesterol drops from a fairly healthy level, but to, to even lower and has had felt the health improvements so we've now run five programs and 83 staff have completed the program and that's slightly over a quarter of the staff at that civic centre. So the, the culture's shifted. That's so fantastic. Significantly. The fridges look different. There's, there's one door with plant milk and one door with cow milk. We've lobbied to get a more healthy plant milk there, one without oil successfully. Family members have changed, kids and partners have changed. So the ripple effects have been really exciting and, and inspiring. And some, each successive program, people have come through word of mouth as much as through the posters and the intranet. Last program, I, I sent the email to a colleague who, with his re- second blood test results, and he'd had incredible cholesterol drops and health outcomes, and he was feeling so much better. He must have opened his email and was showing his colleagues, and the woman behind him emailed me straight away saying, can I do the next program? So it's that kind of snowball effect been inspiring. That's so great. And so what have been some of your best cases who've who've done the challenge? The first program, we had a, a participant who had metabolic syndrome. So he was obese, hypertensive, hypercholesterolemia, and and pre-diabetic. And he's lost 40 kilos since when I last spoke to him. His bloods have come back to normal. His blood pressure has come back to normal. This has completely changed his life and and the life of his partner. The last program, we had a person with undiagnosed full-blown type 2 diabetes. That was gone and normal within five weeks. See, and this is the thing people don't realise, it happens quite quickly, you know, like with diabetes, mm. type 2 diabetes, it happens so rapidly that it's that you need to be monitored. It happens, the results happen so quickly that you need actually a healthcare professional to be watching your, watching your numbers. And we've done that. We make sure that anyone who's, who's on diabetic medication or, or blood pressure meds checks with their GP a week into the program and, a, and two weeks into the program mm. to make sure they're not um, hypoglycemic or, or hypotensive and don't keel over while, while they're driving or, or walking around. Our first program, we did have a person with type 1 diabetes and they got outstanding results, said they'd never had such good glucose control in their life. Felt fantastic. Uh, and I love hearing that, that story because so many people say, oh, well, it doesn't help t- type 1 diabetes, you know, you need to have you know, low 
carb diet for type 1 diabetes because the damage is done and it can't be reversed. And But the thing is, every, time and time again, I hear stories like this with people with type 1 diabetes saying that they need less insulin. They feel better there. It's amazing. Yeah. But the other amazing thing about the program is since – and I – before I'd run the program, Lucy Stegley, the amazing Lucy Stegley, had approached me while I was in the US at a plant-based conference. Hi, Lucy. Just, yeah, to say, would I present at her conference in November, the Michael Clapper one? And I said, sure. I was a bit nervous. I was quite nervous and I wasn't sure what I'd talk about. But I was coming back to Australia to start this program, which recruiting was going proceeding for while I was away and I thought oh maybe I could talk about the program if I've got some good results so lo and behold I did I was scrabbling to to get finalized and, and calculate the results the night before the presentation literally that late it was just touch and go but after presenting at that event you did great thank you <laughs> I loved it that's why you're here on the show <laughs> subsequently I, I had six or seven people approach me to say this is amazing. Can I help you on the program? That includes Malcolm and Jenny, who had helped me on the first program, but they were very keen to keep helping on all the subsequent programs. And But I had a, a wonderful set of colleagues who helped me design, refine, evaluate, and co-deliver all the subsequent programs. So that's Hannah Thompson, who has a Master's in Nutrition, Margot MP, who's wonderful, who has a commerce background, but all of them have eCornell certificate. Um, Lauren McPherson and, and Maxine McGowan. And a wonderful nurse, Steg, who was a bloke over from Denmark who helped us on program two. Um, he had to go back to Denmark after that program, but he was great. So we've had that team running all the subsequent programs and they've been fabulous. And Maxine, for example, we we've had this evolution of the cookbook. The first program said, it wouldn't be nice to have some written recipes in the evaluation. Because we did comprehensive pre and post evaluation to know how they were tracking, not just the quantitative stuff, but also the qualitative. We wanted to know what, the, what they were, how they were going in and what had changed coming out the other end, and also evaluating the program. And they said, we wanted some recipes. So we, between us for program two, we cobbled together a Word document 16 or 18 pages of recipes and printed it out and said, here you go, here's some recipes. And the evaluated program too, and they said, wouldn't it be nice to have some photos? So Maxine, wonderful Maxine, had gone and started cooking and photographing. So she produced a colour cookbook. And the resources that we were giving them page by page that I'd cobbled together and others had cobbled together, we put in the lead into the book. So that's then the resource section as the preamble to the recipes. Oh, that is such a great tool. Yeah, so it's now an 80-page cookbook that Maxine is able to sell on her website and she's kindly allowed us to still use them for the programs with colour photos and, and spiral bound. So we were able to give those to subsequent program participants as a much more effective tool to help them change. Mm. I mean, we also refine the presentations. Every program we evaluate, how do we make it work better? Because others have said this, and we realised it as well, there are really three three legs to getting successful change. And the, the first is having the, the knowledge of the nutrition, like what good nutrition does and what bad nutrition does and, and why. The second is the how to do it, like the practical shopping, cooking, preparing. The third, and in many ways the most important one, is the peer support. And we saw that right from program one, because the evaluation said the peer support was really important. The conversations in the hallways, the conversations around workplaces, in the kitchens at work, people keeping each other on track, sharing recipes, debriefing, bonding, people who hadn't, hadn't, didn't know each other in the workplace before was really powerful. I think it's because I've worked in big, big, big offices for Department of Human Services and other organisations, and 
often you're in your little cubicle, your little pod area, and many workplaces are um are, are built are structured like that. And you speak to the maybe the three people in your in your pod and your team leader or your manager, but nobody else. And so this, I love this because unless there's footy tipping going on, then people tend to be talking about that. But it's so great to hear that they're, that you're creating a space that people can firstly connect with more people in their workplace, which is wonderful, but connect over something that's such a positive contribution to their health and to their team and to the planet as well. Yeah. So from from that, what's um, the conference in February this year that Malcolm and Jenny and I presented at a workshop at we were approached by a major hospital asking if we wanted to set up a lifestyle medicine clinic there. That since fell over, it's a long story, but Malcolm and Jenny have had a long-term dream of setting up a lifestyle medicine clinic, and I'm very enamoured with that idea as well. And so we're pursuing multiple avenues currently to get this going. That would be fantastic. Especially because you live in my area. <laughs> I'm being super selfish. Well, you won't get sick now, hopefully. No. You're on track. No, but, you know, it's nice to know that there's something. Because, you know, we, I'm always looking and hearing about and doing my own research into where – I can send and refer people to refer my health coaching clients or my family and friends to, to doctors. And so I love that I'm growing a team because most of it is over in the States. Most most lifestyle medicine clinics are over in the States and there's some on Sydney and the East Coast. But, I mean, it's nice to hear that Melbourne is growing and that there's more for people to access here. Well, hopefully there will be, yeah. We're, we're, we were thinking originally of of a, just a community setting like any medical practice. And the stumbling block was the cost of setting up a practice and fitting it out because we wanted it enough to have a lecture space for groups, a cooking, a demo kitchen and consulting rooms. But in many ways, being located within and partnering with the hospital makes, makes a really good match because we would still take external patients and walk-ins who weren't hospital patients, but we would all we would the partnership with the hospital means we would be building referral pathways from inside the hospital, and building the the trust and relationship with the specialists to get cardiac and diabetic and bariatric patients, for example, to say, well, here's a, here's a path an alternate pathway that you might take if you want to get well, or you can take the standard pathway. Choice is yours, but we would gradually carve out a space and a reputation. This is our goal and we think that we'll prove it. It'll prove itself because we know it works. So we will prove the model and and then um, and work on that and during that to convince the clinicians that this is actually effective and not and not too far out and that people will embrace it because one of the the constraints on practitioners in mainstream medical practitioners they don't think people will do this but we know that they will when when they see how it works and they're, they're, it's not for everybody we know that there are a proportion of people who will stick to their unhealthy habits and take them to their grave sadly but there are people and a growing proportion of people who will go this is actually worth trying and the other benefit of being in a hospital is that we can we can get enough traffic potentially to generate research which is exciting so we can then do randomized controlled trials and tests you know compare groups with the effect on on all kinds of things on on mood on autoimmune disease you know etc it would be very powerful it would be so powerful i think like i was thinking then how hospitals, you know, I can imagine many hospitals would find that very threatening to their bottom line if you're just stopping their patients from coming back through the door. But then also I like the, you know, I was thinking about, you know, they, they hire so many different modalities within hospitals anyway and another, another stream of 
people coming in because most many people wouldn't go in otherwise. So you would give them business that they might not get without having a lifestyle medicine clinic because I don't rock up to hospitals very often. But if I had a lifestyle medicine clinic and my child was sick, then I it would get me through the door. What you, you, Your comment about hospitals being affected by this, it's, it depends on which sector. Yeah. So it would be at face value detrimental to the private hospital sector who who essentially, if, it, if it's at a, a crude business level, want more people sick and coming in the door. But their work is all funded by the health insurance companies and they would be the, the, the key beneficiary. So we're looking at convincing a health fund or two that this is worth funding. And and in fact, the hospital that approached us in February was a private hospital. The person who approached us is plant-based and, and was at the conference and her, and her CEO was excited to give this a try, but unfortunately he changed roles and it fell through and the, the, the new person in charge wasn't so keen. But it does work for the private sector, and they weren't threatened because this is not going to suddenly take 100% of their patients and make them well and dry up the supply of, of fat and sick people. That's not going to happen in a hurry. We'll be carving off a tiny percentage at this stage. But for the public hospital system, it makes a lot of sense because they have a finite budget to operate and deliver their services from the government, both combined state and federal. If we can show them that we can take someone and put them through our program for under $4,000 a person compared to maybe, I don't know, 50000 for a bypass surgery, this is a huge saving to them. And they don't come back for further treatment because they're well and they're in control of their health. They know how to keep healthy. It's handing the control from the medical system back to the patient and saying, here are all the tools to keep yourself well and out of our clutches. It is. I think that that sounds fantastic. I think that hearing what you're saying about the public hospital system, that makes complete sense. It's, it's very much in their interest. So we're, we're open to either. We'll, we'll, del- we'll deliver it either way. And it, in, in many ways, both systems are struggling to survive. The private sector, as you might have seen in the media recently, is struggling because the, the health funds are facing the tsunami of baby boomers who are fat and sick and starting to cost a lot of money. And at the same time, they've got millennials dropping out or not getting insured at all. And they normally cross-subsidise the unwell people. But that that's not happening because there are not enough healthy young people taking insurance. And so they're, they're, they're predicted that there will be some fallout and, and failures in the private health fund sector. So this is a, is, is a no-brainer for them. It will help them. The, but the public system is also facing the same tsunami of, of unwell, overweight people. And, and we're seeing the trend in the US. The, the health sector there costs around 20% of GDP and, and is steadily growing. And potentially, that'll bankrupt the country. We're in a similar situation here with majority of working age adults having chronic disease and several risk factors for chronic disease. You know, that's 70, 80, 90% have one or more risk factors for chronic disease. So it's, it's a health disaster that's going to be hard to fund unless we change it, change the model. And the model at the moment, as you know, is sickness care. People with chronic disease get, get medication or surgery and they don't get well. They're just treating it. It fascinates me how normal it is. Yeah. You know, it's so normal for people yeah. to have so many ailments. And starting in their 30s, you know. Yeah. Well, for me, yeah. my 20s. So... I, I'm I'm laughing, but it's not funny, and it's just fascinating. And we, you know, we were looking at such a broken, broken system that yeah. is unsustainable and unmanageable, and it's unkind. At the end of the day, these humans are living in these broken, broken bodies for 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 what we know to be no real reason most of the time. Yeah. And because of lack of knowledge and support and guidance. Well, yeah, yes, yes. And lack of community, all those things. Yeah, but we're offering that. We can say we'll give you comprehensive wraparound support 
to make the changes you need and help you get well and take control of your health and put all that behind you. You're right, though. My partner has a book club with some of her, her peers, and she's just um, shy of 50, and she's the only one who's not on medications. And that's crazy. So that's the norm. You're right. And and so in, in a sense, this is I see this as inevitable, that at some point the health care system has to start taking this prevention or, or reversal model. Especially as we approach 9 billion people, like 9 billion chronically ill people. is, is, is yeah. a, It's a lot of money in hospitals yeah. and resources that we simply don't have, you know, to, to, to spend and to no. support these people. 9 billion sick people. We need 9 billion. We need, we need let's face it, we need like 4 billion people. <laughs> but... Yeah, be easier on the planet. And, and and that opens up another area I haven't spoken about yet, but even though I'm, my expertise is in, is in health and all my degrees have been around the human condition, I'm, my primary driver now is actually fear for the environment. Mm, and I'm using my work in helping people get well is an absolute joy and is incredibly rewarding. But the underlying driver for that is to get people off animal food and lighten their footprint. Is I, my, my goal now is to end animal agriculture and to change the healthcare system. So again, another slightly audacious goal, but... I, I have the same one. I have the same goal. So we're united. And I think, like, for me, I... And for every, for you and many people that I know, you know, we are, you, you start thinking about the health. This journey for me started with health. Many, many vegans started with the animals. Uh, bless them. I wish I was an empath- as empathetic and wonderful as they are. So I start with the animals and then they somehow lead, get to the environment and then the health uh, along their journey for me. It was my health and then I was like the animals. Oh, my God, and then the planet. So that's how my journey has gone and now the planet for me. It all ties in, you know, if we're all sick people, where when, when you're really sick, and that's the thing people don't tend to think about when you're talking about whole food plant-based vegan and you're being that annoying vegan at functions or wherever you are, for me, I think if people were well on a whole food plant-based diet, like well, when you're well, when I was sick, I wasn't there was no possibility of me being an unrealistic, naive, audacious human because I was in bed. Mm. And there's no one's changing the world from their sick bed. They're not, cha- they're, not, they're not making great food for their neighbours. They're not connecting with their communities. They're not – very few. Like, obviously, we all know someone who's unwell, who's doing more than what I'm suggesting. But most people, when you're sick, you're not your best. You're not able to – impact the world in the best way. You can't help your family in the best way. If I was sick with MS right now, I would have been in bed all morning while my kids were mindlessly watching screens. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't. They were watching screens, but I was also getting them apple. I was getting them some rice cakes. I was making them, you know, a sweet potato for icing for a, the Iggy's birthday cake. I was making a chalkboard. I was doing stuff that I before this would not have done. Mm. I would have been in bed. I would have said, make your own white bread toast with some Vegemite. I would have shouted it from my bedroom. I wouldn't have been able to do any, I wouldn't have this podcast. I wouldn't do any of the things I do because I literally had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of bed in Mm. chronic pain to do anything at all. Mm. And most people around, 70% of people are living with chronic disease and obesity. Mm. How are they functioning how are they connecting with how are you even in your marriages when you're suffering Mm. you know how are you with your kids when you're suffering how are you and extend that out how are Mm. you with the whole planet how are you helping reduce climate change how are you doing these things helping your communities when you're just barely putting one foot in front of the other most Mm. likely you're not yeah yeah if functioning suboptimally like with with the handbrake on in your car and you're not sleeping as well, your mind's more foggy, you're not thinking as well, you're more tired, you have less energy, less creative. You, It's like a car that runs on petrol and you're putting 30% diesel in it, you know, and it's... it's That's not- best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, the, 
the organism is not going to function properly. And it's impairing and impeding their ability to live a full, energetic, creative life. It's it's heartbreaking, really, when you think about it. And the thing is, it's about doing things like your program. Your program helps people to take that first step, peeling off that layer of fog in that first tree, yeah. where that mental fog, and then getting people to then once you peel off that fog, doors start to open. Yeah. In your life, in your relationships, in your thinking, because before, I, before when I was twenty four. I, you know, I wasn't – I just – I was so sick. I just couldn't have thought about about the animals because I was totally hyper-focused on my own suffering. Mm. I couldn't have about the planet because I was so hyper-focused on my own suffering. The planet didn't matter to me in that moment because I was just thinking about what what can I do? What can I, what can I smoke or what can I mm. drink or do to get me through the next – yeah. 15 minutes. I didn't mention the programs, the workplace programs, we've had incredibly good retention of healthy eating behaviours post the program, even two years later. Because of we, we designed it so that there were wraparound supports, like a closed Facebook group. I still send emails to the group. We still have potluck lunches every month or so. We've organised for one next week at the local Indian restaurant, which have agreed to do an oil-free vegan meal for us with low salt. Ah. After some negotiation and confusion for them, they thought this was crazy, but they've agreed to try it, so we're trying that. So that will bring them a cohort of customers and they can see, well, there's a demand for this. That's fantastic. First of of several, but we've endeavoured to to provide as much support as we can to keep people on track, which is amazing. That's awesome. I think that that is so good. Yeah. to hear that, that that wraparound support is so important and I try to do that with my own work as well but with your work like it's just so great and to get other services and restaurants because you're giving them business they're getting to learn more about how to cook yeah oil free with minimal salt for people which and they're growing and growing and growing number of people who are wanting to be able to eat out mm. yes whole food plant-based oil free and we're, we're in some ways in a like a I think it's a maybe a four or five year gap where we're suddenly in the situation where there are lots of vegan options everywhere you turn, but not whole food plant-based. And I think that's just a little bit of a lag because the sector hasn't caught up with the fact that there are, you know, 11,000 people on the whole food plant-based Aussies Facebook group who are aiming to be whole food plant-based. So there's a a big, biggish and growing market out there for oil-free foods. The realisation that oil is a junk food is starting to percolate through the community it still raises eyebrows and people are still disbelieving but but it's getting there and i think within five years we might see a change where vegan restaurants get it and a few more restaurants get it even just having one or two options would be so good i can't wait for that yeah but it's a weird hiatus and it reminds me of what it was like 20 30 years ago Mm. trying to eat out oh my gosh i can't imagine what you're just eating salads with no dressing. Need out much. It was yeah. rare. Yeah, yeah. Living yeah. in San Francisco, when I got back to Australia, it it was very rare. Mm. Yeah. So it's a different world. It's such a different world. Now, before we go, I need to. Uh, you've probably given me your three biggest tips: knowledge, how to do it, and peer support are pretty. Pretty much. I mean, the, well, you talked about the ethics and the environment. To me, it doesn't matter how people come to eating this way as long as they do. And as you said, it's the series of doors. You open the first door and then it leads to the next door and people tend to find those subsequent doors. And so they're on a path and a journey. And even if they're not all the way there, it doesn't matter. They've started that path and they can't unknow what they know. And it's less likely that they'll go backwards down that path. Occasionally people do, but they still still know what they know. And, uh, And, as you say, if you come to it from ethics, eventually you figure out the health stuff and then you figure out the environment stuff and, and then you're really committed. Committed. And, it, and I do think that for most of us, 
Yeah, once you've opened all three, once you've unlocked all three doors, it's like some kind of labyrinth. But once you've unlocked all three doors, it's it's very, very, very difficult to go back. I don't, I'm not going back, but I mean. It's such so self-evident then. Yeah, it is. It's hard to imagine anything else. It is. Anything other than that seems like the most, for me, it feels like the most selfish choice and I could never make that choice. Yeah, and and. The environment side of it, we won't survive as a species if we don't change. The planet won't survive. I I had the privilege of presenting an all-day lecture at a local university recently to environment students, Masters of Environment students. That was fantastic. I put weeks and weeks preparing on food and environment. So I have a a six-and-a-half-hour class ready to go now if any other universities are interested or a shortened version. And that was so much fun delivering that. But... I think only one of that class was vegan. I asked, you know, their backgrounds and so forth at the beginning of the day, and they were gobsmacked. They were shocked. And I had to preface it saying, this is this is actually quite alarming. So I don't mean to be depressing, and we will look at some positive directions and possibilities at the end, but at the moment, the way things are going, it's quite depressing and quite alarming. Mm, especially with the Amazon rainforest. That's Oh, it's everything. Everything. Yeah. It's it's crazy scary it's where crazy. we're heading. It is. Like lemmings to a cliff edge. Absolutely. It is. But I did think, now, before we hang out, we, I feel like we can end the podcast with lemmings on a cliff edge. <laughs> <laughs> For people, off you go, enjoy your week. <laughs> <laughs> the end is nigh. I do think, just quickly promoting something that's nothing to do with me and that's not an ad, but I am... Um, I do think that the movie documentary film 2040 made some really positive points about what's possible, what's already existing right now, what we could do if we all bandied together. I liked that. I do think that we could do one thing differently and that is share the planet with the animals and not just exploit the animals, kill them so that they can help us grow more crops. If they're helping us grow more crops, Let's let them live. Mm. We could share the land. It makes total sense. We can just grow more crops because it makes them grow more crops. Why do we have to? Why do we have to exploit them and then eat their bodies that are unhealthful for our, for us? That was my only sticking point with it. I was like, this is good, but just think, think one step forward. If the animals help us grow better, higher yielding crops, why not reward them with their lives? Mm. And we can, because we're getting higher yields of crops, then we have more food that we can eat, so we don't need to eat the animals. That was my only stick. I don't know if you've seen it or not, Peter. Have you seen? I it? tried to three weekends in a row. My oh. partner and I tried to go, and it was booked out, sold out each of the weekends. We couldn't get in, oh. so I haven't seen it yet. Well, it's good. It's just that one thing that they talk about that they need cattle to grow yeah. more, to make the soil rich with their shit and eating all the, getting, you know. Except you don't. There's a veganics movement now which is growing food without any animal inputs. See, you I just not- thought if that was the only option, why don't you just let them rotate? The, they're talking about crop rotation with cattle. I was like, why can't you just keep those guys? Why do you have to kill those guys? Just keep those guys. If, if, the, if you do a count of the mammals on the planet today, Two-thirds are cattle, are livestock, pigs and and cows. One-third are humans and 4% are wild mammals. How terrifying is that? so heartbreaking. You know, it's interesting because we are dying because we don't have diverse internal bacteria in our bodies that we need. It's literally killing us, the lack of biodiversity within our bodies. And then we don't, and our planet is exactly mirroring what we're doing inside us. Exactly. By just, just we're just going to have two things we have on the planet, cows. There's no giraffes, no, there's no worms, there's no frogs. We've just got cows and our bodies have just got the one terrible bacteria that's giving us chronic disease. I'm, ju- I'm just generalising here, but it's just fascinating how how blind we are that we need everything is needed. I watched The Lion King last night. Mufasa was on to something. For everything to work, we have to work together and don't just kill everything and leave a black barren skeleton land. 
which we're doing. And the same thing applies to birds. The vast majority of all birds on the planet now are poultry for human consumption who are confined, being fed grains, living horrible, cruel lives, and and the wild birds are decreasing. They're a small proportion of all the birds on the planet now because we're taking their habitat. There's a collapse of insect populations as well. So the, but the good news is that we can we can turn things around by stopping buying animal foods. It's as simple as what, what you buy and what you put in your mouth. That's the good news. That's the good news. And we will end on that because we're ending on a high note. <laughs> that is the good news. And it's so simple, which makes me so excited. I feel like I have to do, even though I do many things, I feel like I have to do nothing at all to just not eat animals. You have to do less. And I love that. Do less by just not going down a couple of aisles with animal products in them. You're saving time in the supermarket. You're saving cooking time. You don't have to clean the oil animal fat splash from up in your range hood and your oven's not as hard to clean. There's so many time-saving benefits that you don't realise that happen when you go vegan. Mm. And oil-free. <laughs> And oil-free. I love not cleaning greasy range hoods and uh, stuff out of my oven grill tray. Oh, frying pans soaking with that white fat along the bottom of it. Oh, no. No, thank you. It's a great thing to miss out on. And the plates and pots are not greasy either. Yeah. And and you don't get heart disease. Very unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your arteries aren't greasy and clogged as well. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Corinne. Lovely to speak with you. Hello again, and thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into that episode with Peter Johnston. I absolutely loved talking to Peter and hearing that story. It just made me feel like he's lived 1,000 lives in one. And I need to pull my finger out and get started on accomplishing as many things as what Peter has accomplished in his life. Uh, thank you so much, Peter, for coming on the show. I love the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful that there are humans out there doing the work that you're doing. It is such important and valuable work. And I'm so grateful that you're helping other people to adopt a whole food plant-based diet to feel better and as a result doing something wonderful for not only the animals but for the planet that we all are so blessed to live on. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, I put out new episodes every Monday slash Tuesday Australian time, Sunday slash Monday for the Northern Hemisphere. And you can also join my Facebook group, Plant-Based and Thriving. If you would like more ongoing community support in that Facebook group, I share posts there pretty regularly. I also am on Instagram at Corinne Nidja and on Facebook at Corinne Nidja. And you can check out my website for recipes, information, my new ebook. Thrive that's over there as well for $15. You can also, if you want coaching from me and support, if you are looking to adopt a whole food plant-based diet yourself and don't know where to start, there is the option of a free 30-minute whole food plant-based coaching call over there. So head over there, check it out. The link will be in the show notes if you click on this episode. Thank you all so much for listening and I'll see you all next week. Bye. Bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier day